Hey everyone, I'm David Chalian, the CNN political director. This is The Daily DC. One major debate still raging in this country, whether or not America should start getting back to work to avoid more economic calamity, even if the spread of coronavirus is not entirely contained. Both President Trump and Speaker Pelosi addressed this today. You're going to lose a number of people to the flu, but you're going to lose more people by putting a country into a massive recession or depression. People can go back to work and they can also practice good judgment. Any president or anybody with responsibility should be scientifically inclined, evidence-based. And that is what will be the light at the end of the tunnel. What the president is suggesting is that that light at the end of the tunnel could be a train coming at us if people are out and about. We'll have more on that debate a little later in the show. Right now, the Senate is inching closer to a deal on the nearly $2 trillion stimulus bill that would help with the economic impact that the spread of coronavirus is having across the country. In a few minutes, we'll be talking to Elizabeth Cohen, CNN's senior medical correspondent, about the future of this pandemic. But first, to discuss all the latest developments on Capitol Hill is Alex Rogers, our CNN congressional reporter, who, like many of us, are working from home. Uh, and Alex, I thank you for joining this uh, podcast remotely today. David, thanks for having me. So, Alex, just give me the latest state of play as you understand it at, uh, you know, mid-afternoon on Tuesday. Sure. So... As you mentioned, the coronavirus pandemic um, has struck the entire country. Hundreds of people have died from this. Tens of thousands have been affected. Hundreds of thousands could lose their jobs. There is an urgency on Capitol Hill to respond to all of this. The bill is expected to be the largest economic stimulus package in American history. The total cost is expected to be about $2 trillion. And right now, we are expecting... Um, the bill to be locked in and improved by both chambers of Congress. That timing could slip. The Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin recently told reporters that he hopes it's tonight, um, but they still think that they can get there. Uh, there's a number of different provisions in the, in the bill, but they're, they're, they're going through and they're finalizing all of the language right now. So, Alex, one of the major sticking points had been this uh, $500 billion a fund where the Secretary of the Treasury would have this enormous discretion uh, in getting those funds out the door, uh, the reporting requirements of which companies would file reports about receiving those funds seem to be a, a point of contention. But it seems like there has been uh, some ability for the two sides, uh, meaning the Democrats and the administration, to come together on this. Right. So this is a $500 billion for loans to distressed companies. It's $50 billion in loans or loan guarantees to passenger air carriers, also a ton of money for carrier, cargo air carriers and other companies uh, deemed important to maintaining national security. But what was at issue was that the Democrats really wanted more oversight. And it appears that Mnuchin, who has been negotiating the deal, has agreed to an inspector general and congressional oversight, which may remove one of the, the big sticking points here. Um, Senator Schumer, the Democratic leader, wanted to limit stock buybacks, CEO pay, layoffs, and um, Democrats were also particularly concerned that Mnuchin could withhold information on who received the loans for six months. So we're still trying to figure out exactly what that language is, but it does appear that there is uh, some agreement there that could um, help this bill get across the finish line. Um, Alex, there's a lot of criticism. I heard it from uh, the president today when he was talking about uh, the version of the deal that he said he canceled last night when he was uh, 
saying that Nancy Pelosi came in and wanted to put all of her uh, non-coronavirus-related priorities into this bill. Then he, uh, just moments after that on Fox News indicated, he too was of the mind that they were going to reach agreement soon. So he sort of pulled back a little bit from that criticism. But I see Republicans hammering vulnerable congressional Democrats running for re-election over things like – uh, a $35 million request in Pelosi's version, which is not the Senate version being worked on, uh, for the Kennedy Center. It is impossible, right, with a nearly $2 trillion bill, that there aren't going to be um, favorite pet projects in here from both sides that are going to be exposed as something uh, tenuously, if not at all, really connected to the emergency of the economic and public health situation. That's That's Congress doing its thing, isn't it? Right. And the House may not even vote on that bill. Uh, Speaker Pelosi's trying to avoid bringing the full House back to D.C. to vote on this package. I'm hoping instead to um, pass it through unanimous consent or another way to, to make it as quickly as possible. Um, but sure, in a $2 trillion bill, as I said, the largest economic stimulus package in U.S. history, there's going to be things in here um, that people are going to try to pick at for their own political purposes. $350 billion in small business loans, $250 billion in expansion and enhancement for unemployment insurance. Um, Senator Chuck Schumer said today that the legislation will have unemployment insurance on steroids for months. Um, and then $250 billion in direct payments to individuals and families. You know, individuals getting $1,200 each, couples getting uh, $2,400 each, and then an additional stipend of $500 each for, for children. There's also business tax relief. And as you mentioned, that $500 billion for distressed companies. So there's a ton that's in this bill. Um, that House bill that you mentioned, it's unlikely that um, we'll even see that the House vote on that particular uh, bill. So uh, you can you can tell, though, that the political organizations in Washington have been trying to use this as an issue, claiming credit for various uh, parts of the bill um, and even picking out provisions that may not even be voted on. So, yeah, I mean, Speaker Pelosi has stated she actually just really hopes uh, everyone comes to agreement on this bill that's being worked out in the Senate and that she won't even have to call her members of Congress back uh, to the House of Representatives to vote that perhaps they could vote on it by unanimous consent if there is true agreement uh, all the way around. That's what we're waiting to see uh, as these hours tick away. And if that kind of total agreement doesn't come to play, uh, I would imagine uh, the the concern in the markets will will skyrocket. Um, I, I can't thank you enough, Alex, for being here. I greatly appreciate your insights and reporting. Uh, stay safe. You too. Thanks so much for having me. And now joining us is Elizabeth Cohen, CNN senior medical correspondent. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, David. So can I just start with you uh, with sort of the notion of the healthcare system capacity? When we hear Governor Cuomo uh, today talk about uh, the need for ventilators and and put it in uh, life or death sort of terms is is that being hyperbolic to try to speed the federal government's response here to help his state get ventilators or is this real that that there is not the proper uh, level of equipment needed to respond to the to the cases that are presenting themselves. You know, I would take the governor at his word. I think that they don't have the resources that they need. You know, they, they uh, you know, stock their equipment by need, by what they usually see. And it's pretty consistent, 
you know, year to year, year to year. Maybe they need more during flu season. But this is different. This is a very large increase in need in his state. And I think we should take him at his word when he says that he needs them. And when he says that his state should be prioritized, because, of course, New York has so many more cases than anybody else. And uh, do you have um, any reporting to suggest from from experts you talk to about why that is, why New York has the most cases? I've heard uh, uh, Dr. Burks was speaking about sort of maybe population density having an issue to deal with this or perhaps even uh, – I don't know, because of the subway in New York City, sort of metal surfaces where I live. But do you have a sense of what else contributes to New York having so many more cases than anywhere else in the country? Sure. So there's a couple of factors going on here. Number one, New York just has more people, right? There's just more people to infect. Number two, as you mentioned, they live densely, so they are going to get each other sick. Um, They are with each other more. They are touching more of the same surfaces, as you mentioned, with subways. And I think that's important. Another thing to keep in mind is what an infectious disease expert said to me, Elizabeth, think of it kind of as like flu every year. And I, I cover the flu every year. So I track these numbers and these maps really closely. It starts out in one place and then you see a pocket someplace else and then you see a pocket someplace else. So this year, for example, it just happened to be Louisiana. Other years, it's other places. And by the end of the flu season, everyone has it. And that's what this doctor was emphasizing to me, David. He said, you know, it's starting here. It's starting there. It's starting in Washington. It's starting in New York. But you will see it spread to more places. It will not stay in those places. We are too mobile of a society for that to happen. Right. And this is, I think, exactly Governor Cuomo's point today about sort of being the canary in the coal mine. He, he said what you are seeing in New York is just a preview of what you are going to see elsewhere, California or or elsewhere across the country. Uh, is your sense now have been reporting on this for weeks you've been doing now is your sense that um, our healthcare system is better prepared today than it was a week ago. How do we assess the status of the healthcare system's ability to deal with this? I think that doctors are and hospitals are more aware that they need to get ready for this. But I think when you don't have enough ventilators, you don't have enough ventilators. As Governor Cuomo said, you, I can't find them, I can't buy them, and nobody can. So no matter how aware a hospital might have been even in mid-January when this all started. If you had a particularly active and knowledgeable hospital that said, shoot, look at what's happening in China, we better get, make sure that we have everything ready. Still, if there's not enough equipment, there's not enough equipment. If there aren't enough ventilators, there's not enough ventilators. And really, I think the thing that gets lost here too is staffing. You can order more ventilators and order more equipment and hope that they become available. It is hard to invent doctors and nurses. Hmm. I mean, that is uh, so true. And and you even heard uh, the Surgeon General today was talking about his own experience of, of being in an operating room as an anesthesiologist and understanding the need for this and and putting those sort of first line uh, frontline responders the doctors and nurses first uh, and foremost and yet as you said uh they're also some of the most vulnerable population and you can't invent them so that clearly puts a stress on the system where are we elizabeth in terms of having an understanding of whether or not this curve that we hear so much about is actually being flattened or not We won't know for a little bit, David, because really we just started these measures in the past 
you know, week, two weeks. And so we're not going to see it right now. We're going to have to wait. And that's why some of the talk that's coming from the Trump administration about, hey, let's get the economy going. Let's get people out there. Let's wait and see how these measures are working, because if they are working and we won't know for a bit, if they're working, we want to continue them. It's hard to tell people, sure, go back to work. It's hard even to tell a subset of the population, sure, go back to work. Don't worry about social distancing when they could be doing real harm. And we need to wait and see how these measures are working. It is too early to say they're either working or not working. Well, the president clearly is not getting that message yet, as you noted. And he said just a few moments ago, right before we started recording, uh, he's setting a deadline of Easter. I'd love to have it open by Easter. Okay, I would love to have it open by Easter. I will I will tell you that right now. I would love to have that. It's such an important day for other reasons, but I'll make it an important day for this, too. I would love to have the country opened up and uh, just raring to go by Easter. That's when he believes America needs to be uh, raring to go back at work, fully turned on the economy back. That's two and a half weeks away. Uh, Do health officials that you talk to think in two and a half weeks time, we will know where, whether and how much uh, this virus has been beaten back? Health officials that I'm talking to, David, are smart enough to know that they should not be predicting the future. That is always a dangerous business. Is it possible that by Easter, the curve will have flattened and we will feel comfortable sending people back to work? Sure, that's possible. But you don't talk now about what could happen in two and a half weeks. You wait for that time to come and then you make a decision. It is very dangerous to start talking now about what we might do two and a half weeks from now because we just don't know. I know you're uh, a health reporter. And so to ask you an economy question is not fair. I'm just I will just note that Governor Cuomo gave sort of the notion today that um, you could do both, that you that you can uh, make sure that the economy starts processes of coming back from total turnoff and continue down this path of protecting public health. He says it's sort of a false choice that it's one or the other. Do, do, do health officials you talk to think that it is public health versus the economy, or do they too think that there's a way to do this all together? I think that they want to investigate whether there is a way to do both of these things. So, for example, one notion that's come up, which is intriguing, is we now have probably many, many, many Americans who uh, are immune to coronavirus because they've had it. So either they've had it and they know that they've had it because they were sick and they were tested, or they had it and they don't know that they had it because either A, they never got really sick, so it didn't occur to them, or B, they did get really sick, but they didn't get tested because there's such a scarcity of tests, of tests out there. It's an intriguing thought. Would it be possible to do what's called antibody testing, which is to see if you have the antibodies, to see if you already had the disease? Would it be worth, is it possible and would it be worth it to test people and say, you know what, we think you're immune and we think that you can go back to work and you can go back to work and you can go back to work. You know, it's an interesting question that 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 deserves more exploration. Yeah. And also just in terms of the social distancing uh, that has been put in place around the country is, you know, is there a way to go back to work and still employ that? That seems remarkably difficult to me. 
you would have to be incredibly careful. Um, I, I've, I've heard of an office, for example, where there are five people and they each come in, you know, one comes in Monday, one comes in Tuesday, one comes in Wednesday, one, and so on, so that there's only one person in there at a time. But still, those people have to get to work. So unless they're driving in their own car, that, you know, then you have issues with buses and trains and Ubers and whatnot. They probably need to pass by people to get to work. They need to touch surfaces to get to work. So I think that is, that, that, that's a little risky. Um, I know you say that all the folks you talk to and they are wise not to predict the future. I, I get that. But we have seen in the immediate past, right, an, a, a rapid increase in this doubling rate. Um, and I, I just... Uh, wonder if you are looking for more of that in the days ahead. Are you? Is that one of the metrics you look at to see how quickly cases are presenting themselves? Yes, absolutely. So while these 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 infectious disease experts I'm talking to and these epidemiologists are smart enough to not predict the future, they can look at the present, they can look at the immediate past, and they can say, "Gosh, if it is going up exponentially and not linearly." this is not going to end anytime in the near future. We are not going to, no one's going to wake up tomorrow morning and say, look, we've hit our peak. It's getting better. That is not going to happen. It's not going to happen the next day. It's not going to happen the day after that. Do we know when that will happen? We don't know, but it is very safe to say that we are not going to be on the downside of this curve anytime soon. Elizabeth Cohen, I can't thank you enough for your incredible hard work and for your reporting and your insights here today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, David. My pleasure. A special thanks to our listeners as well. Remember, we publish a new episode every weeknight. So please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. While you're there, consider leaving a rating or a comment. It helps people find the show. And if you want to tweet about this podcast, please do so using the hashtag TheDailyDC. Stay safe. Stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii.